Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, what's new? Nothing much. Uh, I gather they had a rather tranquil transition in the White House yesterday. Uh, no, I mean, I think yesterday was one of the, the days which answers the following question. Could anything in 2021 be worse than everything that happened in 2020? And the answer is, in some sense, yes. I mean, it was a disgraceful display, starting with the president, working down to the mobsters who tried to take everything over. Uh, but like all wars, when you start to have some truly venomous people, there's always got to be somebody who's on the other side of it. And at this point, I think the two unlikely heroes for their rather strong stands were Mike Pence, who's the vice president, um, who took his religious oath of office very seriously and said, I'm not simply going to deviate from these procedures that we follow time out of mind in order to please my sitting president. Uh, the fact that he faced the wrath of Donald Trump, I think, is an enormous plus in his favor. And I think the same thing could be said about Mitch McConnell. I mean, he made it very, very clear that even though he was going to end up being the minority rather than the majority leader, um, you cannot sacrifice the long continuity in our traditions in order to advance some kind of partisan statement. And it wasn't wishy-washy. I think he went on fairly strongly uh, to say that he was going to to do exactly that. Uh, Trump uh, did not redeem himself. You can't redeem yourself for what he did. Uh, but at least the last move is he now agrees to an orderly transition. But I think by acclamation, I don't believe he will be there at the inauguration. My guess is he don't want to attend, and I don't think anybody else in the country wants him to happen. Uh, so I think we've come out of this rather frightful situation, perhaps a bit better than we had expected 24 hours ago. Uh, but still, this is the kind of thing that never should have happened. And if you disagree with me on this, Adam, I will call you per se unreasonable. Well, I do disagree with something you said at the very end there, Richard. Ah, um, good. About, uh, nobody wants Trump at the inauguration. No, I very much want him in the front row, like any outgoing president, uh, watching the peaceful transfer of power. I don't think it'll happen like you. I think he'll probably be down in Mar-a-Lago surrounded by friends who tell him how great he is and how the election was stolen. But I think if there are any justice in the world, he would be in the front row, just like every other failed presidential candidate who didn't win re-election. But we're recording this the, the morning of January 7th, in case it's not obvious, um, the day after a lot of things happened. And we're going to cover them all today, the the, the assault on the Capitol the Electoral College uh, resolution, but also the, the Garland nomination. And it's, it feels like 100 years ago already, but you know, right before all of that, the, the, the outcome of the, of the Senate elections uh, in Georgia. But let's stick for now with what happened yesterday. Richard, we saw some really disturbing images on TV throughout the day um, from beginning with President Trump's rally to just sort of rile up the mob and then pointing them in the direction of Capitol Hill and, and watching everything take its predictable course. Does this change anything? Does this change your, does this, I mean, you and I have been arguing about president Trump for, for a long time. I mean, and I know you're no, no particular fan of his. No. Um, do you think this is going to have any, any changes or is this going to, is this just more of the same? Um, look, I, I, let me put it to you this way. I think I called for his resignation on the grounds that he didn't have the character 
or a temperament to be the president in January of 2017. He had been in office 10 days, and it was quite clear to me that he was going to careen from one disaster to another. And uh, the question is just how large were the magnitudes? And I think what happened is that things got worse and worse as time went on because there was this terrible cycle that took place. Trump would say something outrageous. The uh, Democrats would come lashing out at him with a kind of a fury. After a while, you don't know who's responding and who's initiating because it's an endless sort of cycle. And I think slowly over time, the president, who had certainly legitimate grievances about the way in which he was treated on the impeachment, about the way in which the Kavanaugh hearing went, about what happened with the Steele dossier and so forth, he gets more and more angry. Uh, The reason it's important that there's some reasons out there for him to feel that way is that it legitimates himself to himself, and then it just goes over the top. When did it really start to show its point as being truly unstable? I would mark this at the first debate that he had with Biden, uh, where he evidently took the advice of Rudy Giuliani, not your leading media coach, and decided that he was going to be obnoxiously confrontational at every opportunity. My guess is that what he did under those circumstances is that he cost himself uh, the presidential election. Uh, up to that time, I think he had a very credible chance of winning. But then what he did is he just turned so many people off that it no longer became a debate about policy. It became a debate about personality. And a bland Joe Biden is going to beat a vicious Donald Trump every time on that. And then from there, it just, I think, continued to go downhill. Um, There were certainly some irregularities, I think. I think the process by which they were adjudicated or not adjudicated would, in the fullness of time, be uh, seen to be inadequate in some way. But none of this really mattered. Once it's clear what the outcome is, uh, what Trump has to do is what every other president has done or nominee has done is when they've lost, uh, apparently you cut the fight off. He decides to intensify. And I, I think once it turned out that uh, uh, he had lost it, then when his assault on the Republican Secretary of State and his entire intervention with respect to the Georgia um, senatorial elections uh, resulted, as Michael Barone, who said in the Wall Street Journal, in the defeat of two Republican nominees. Um, the individuals are not important one way or another, but the transfer of power is simply enormous. And what will happen now is the Republicans are going to be playing defense all the way through. Uh, My view about it is that the Biden agenda is no more attractive after the farcical behavior of Donald Trump than it was before. And the question now is how the Republicans can regroup. I'll just make one final observation. I think one good feature about this is I think that Donald Trump has destroyed any and all chances that he could be a possible Republican nominee in 2024. And I hope that it will eliminate any influence that he has over the operations of the party in the interim period. As somebody who's a classical liberal, to have to have your substantive positions tied up with that madman in the way in which he behaves is one of the really difficult things that you had to live with. And I think now that what Trump should do is to simply exit the scheme and not be heard from again. I doubt that he will do that, but I certainly hope that the Republican Party will turn a blind eye uh, towards him and that he will be deprived of all future influence. And then you can see whether or not the progressive agenda could stand up against the traditional Republican values of limited government and strong markets. And I don't think that they can do very well. The progressive agenda is every bit as bad after Trump misbehaved as it was before. And I agree with you that President Trump shouldn't run again for president. I also, like you, I suspect he'll at least hold out 
for his supporters to hope that he'll do so and sort of dangle that for a couple of years at least and, and continue to be, if not the center of gravity in, in the Republican Party, one of the most important centers of gravity in the Republican Party. And I think other would-be presidential contenders will probably sort of organize themselves around his orbit waiting to see what he does. But there is, I guess, before we even get to that point, there's just the last two weeks of this administration and what he might do um, this morning. Again, this is January 7th. We're seeing resignations in the White House, pretty low level so far, but but I mean, they're, they're rising. It'll be interesting to see who leaves, um, if the National Security Advisor leaves or White House Chief of Staff. And if we really do have a President Trump without any guardrails in the White House, other than maybe Jared Jared. Kushner and Ivanka Trump, then we're in a really dangerous place. There's been calls for the 25th Amendment to be exercised, calls for impeachment. Those are two different, very different things. I definitely think that what he did yesterday warrants uh, a second impeachment. And even if he, there, there's no chance that he'll be removed from office by the Senate in the next two weeks, I think it's important for the House of Representatives to really make clear as a matter of historical record that what President Trump did stirring up a, an invasion, a violent invasion of Capitol Hill is, to say the least, impeachable. Um, will that happen? I don't know. I think it should happen. I, I I don't think that the 25th Amendment is necessarily the right tool. That seems to me to be something that people are trying to conjure up theories of how it could be used I think as a matter of practice, it wouldn't work out. I think as a matter of theory, it's not even really what the 25th Amendment is there for. It's not a sort of executive branch impeachment of the president. Um, But, you know, Richard, given that you you said you wanted the president to resign 10 days into the administration, do you think he he should be impeached again? Oh, Lord. The only objection to impeachment is not the question of whether or not he committed an impeachable offense. I think incitement to riot against the government that he's sworn to protect is as close to a high crime and misdemeanor as you could ever imagine. And surely the conduct is that. I think it's important once he's out of office that he be prosecuted for incitement for riot. Um, Whether that's under federal or state law is going to be very tricky because it's in the District of Columbia and we never what goes on. Um, I think the dangers that you have in trying to run an impeachment trial in the last days are logistical and and probably very, very serious. Uh, So the rule that I would have is the Republican leadership decides that this should be done by acclamation without further hearing. I would certainly not stand in the way of that. I think the more important thing, however, is to make it very, very clear uh, that uh, the question of whether or not the president gets immunity for this kind of action uh, from prosecution, I think during the term of office is a respectable case to say you can't prosecute him. That is in the next 10 days. But once he's out of office, you're no longer going to interfere with the operation of the situation. And I can't conceive of how any theory of executive immunity uh, would apply to incitement of riot cases. It's designed to deal with tough executive decisions that are made uh, that necessarily offend some people in foreign or domestic affairs. Uh, This is utterly beyond the pale to give you an example. There is a an implicit immunity under Section 1983 for judicial offices, i.e. for judges, absolutely immune. Now you suppose that a judge gets up instead of giving an adverse ruling, he shoots one of the litigants in the head in the open courtroom. I don't think in effect that the immunity should apply in that case. And I feel the same thing is true about Trump. So I think in effect that 
the criminal system should take over after this. Uh, fortunately, Merrick Garland is in charge of the particular officer, and he's about as good as it gets. And so um, I think I would trust him to make the kind of judgment. Uh, but I mean, there's nothing kind to be said about Donald Trump. His behavior has embarrassed everybody who's his supporter. And what's happened, he's gone from being a controversial figure to becoming an intellectual, social, and political pariah. The reason why I asked earlier about whether anything had changed based on yesterday is because I also today I, I did an episode of the Bulwark podcast, and that's an episode that the, the, that's a question that the host Charlie Sykes asked me, and I, it was a tough question. As I thought through it, I said, "Well, what, what has changed? I think for me is my view of of investigations into the Trump administration by the next administration. I've been against that for a long time. I've I've been arguing both that the Trump administration should not be investigating uh, its opponents in the Obama administration. I thought that was a, a misuse of prosecutorial power for political ends. And, and I think that the cycle of administrations investigating each preceding one is a very, very dangerous one. And it seems to be amplifying with each turn. I mean, you saw when the Obama administration took over, Eric Holder said from the outset he wanted to investigate and possibly overturn, you know, what had been done in, in Guantanamo and, and and punish people who were involved in, in Guantanamo. And and I think we've seen ever since then this growing trend of prosecuting previous administrations. And what changed for me, though, is I think yesterday what President Trump did, again, because it was directed at the Capitol, I think is so profoundly dangerous, both as a matter of public safety, but also just a matter of constitutional self-government. There has to be something. And I don't know that it's criminal prosecution. I'm still very wary of that. I, I, almost, I wish that Joe Biden would, early in his presidency, effectively declare President Trump guilty and then pardon him um, for the crimes uh, that Biden thinks he committed after an investigation. Um, to mark President Trump as guilty, but not subject the country to this possibility of of trying private previous presidents. But after yesterday, even while I'm still against prosecutions, I think there does need to be something, at least in the form of a congressional investigation, into what happened yesterday, both on the, the policing side of things and, and why was there no real organized preemptive defense against this, this attack. You know, President Trump has been saying for days now that January 6th was going to be a big, big day um, in terms of stirring things up. He didn't say that he was going to point everybody towards the Capitol and rile them up to the point of an invasion, but um, there should have been better precautions taken. And I think there needs to be a real congressional investigation of that and also an investigation into anything President Trump and his administration or his White House did to facilitate what happened yesterday. And I think the Biden administration ought to do whatever it can to facilitate that investigation. Although, again, I think stopping short of prosecuting Trump. But, but, but Richard, what about the self-pardon? I mean, it isn't... Is, uh, okay, let me go answer the first. Of, sure, sure. I mean, answer that. But I'm, I'm curious also about the, the self-pardon issue that's... Yeah, that's oh, my God, yes. On the first of the thing, I don't think you should criminally prosecute the Trump invest, administration. Uh, but I 
don't think there's a lot against publishing the president for incitement to riot, um, notwithstanding the general view about presidential immunity. And if it were limited just to those particular events, then I, I can understand how it would take place. I think the difficulty is you'd want to take care that there is some independence so that you have both Republicans and Democrats on the uh, a prosecutorial situation. You don't want a repetition of anything that looks remotely like the Mueller situation. When it comes to the question of, of presidential self-pardons, I think the law on that is relatively clear. The president has never done it, but the president is probably entitled to do it. The pardon power is absolute. There are no fiduciary duties that are built into it. Uh, the system has been subject to notorious abuse in the past. This would be yet another version of that, but I think it takes a constitutional amendment uh, to change the situation. I did write a piece on this in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago. Again, I never, ever thought that what would be going on would be a prosecution for a garden variety street crime as opposed to some affairs of state where I think it still goes. Um, my guess is it probably still would hold that he could pardon himself. He could not pardon himself, I think, with respect to state offenses. I'm not sure whether or not the pardon would cover this last incitement to riot uh, type situation. My guess is it would, and I would regret it if that were in fact the case, but I think it probably is. Uh, I think the state prosecutions are going to go forward. And in fact, um, one of the things that we have to worry about in this particular case that he has to worry about is there may well be kind of coordinated activities that took place that didn't center exclusively on the District of Columbia. So where was Trump uh, do you remember, Adam, when he started to issue his command? I don't believe he was in Washington, D.C., was he? No. I mean, when he started tweeting about this stuff? No, I think he was down in Florida. I think it was down in Florida. Well, I mean, you know, there's no presidential pardon that excuses you from committing incitement to riot under state law. Yeah, I, I'm really worried about this because this is not the first nor the last time that a president's defenders are going to do something. A president's fans are supposed to do something stupid. And while this seems a pretty clear-cut case, I do worry about the next case where a president says something and some fan of the president, and not necessarily President Trump, but a future president, goes and causes trouble, you know, smashes up a storefront in some other state. Does that does does that state's prosecutorial apparatus then begin to try to exercise jurisdiction over the over president? The I would uh, say. I, I, I'd say no, certainly during the term of office. I mean, post, I'm against having prosecutions of the president by state officials while the president's still in office because of the interference with official function. But I'm not against it after he's out of office with respect to the kinds of behaviors that I would regard as sort of heinous crimes against social peace and violence. I am very much against state prosecutions after he leaves office for political decisions that were taken. But uh, there have been a number of types of situations in which Republicans and Democrats who said, we really regard X as an odious character, and then somebody takes it into his hand to kill them. Wasn't there an attack by Democrats on several Republicans in the Congress when they're playing at a softball game? Um, And that was inspired, arguably, by some of the things that Democratic senators said in the presidential campaign. It may well have been inspired, but I think there's no prosecution there. I think there's no prosecution as a matter of private criminal law, rather general criminal law, and I don't think there's any here. Uh, But this case is, you know, I I think you could paint the picture, and this is one of a kind. 
um, because unfortunately it turns out to be one of a kind. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I mean, I think the president literally took leave of his senses under these circumstances. My guess is, given his announcement about the orderly transition this morning, even he, dense as he is, realized that he seriously overstepped the line. Uh, but, you know, the apology afterwards is not an excuse for the act. It may count in some kind of mitigation when it gets to sentencing. Uh, but I, let me put it to this way. I am not at this particular point institutionally opposed to the prosecution of Trump as a matter of state law for incitement to riot after he leaves office. You know, the, the President Trump's statement, this is something that he's been so after he was banned from or temporarily banned from Twitter, uh, Dan Scavino, I can't remember exactly what his role is in the in the campaign of the White House, but he's one of President Trump's spokesmen, tweeted, uh, quote, even though I totally disagree with the outcome of the election and the facts bear me out, nevertheless, there will be an orderly transition on January 20th. I've always said we would continue our fight to ensure that only legal votes were counted. Um, et cetera, et cetera. I, I just read that very differently. I, I don't think that's an apology. I don't think that's a chasing. I think that's the latest example of President Trump just saying in words the opposite of what he's actually doing. It's like during the protest yesterday when he said, stay peaceful, even though he knew that he had riled them up. He knew that they weren't, they weren't even stay peaceful. They weren't peaceful at that point. Um, it's like when he said, in, you know, surrounding the Ukraine investigation, uh, no quid pro quo. Right. He's he's just saying things. It's it's like if a, a bank robber walked into a bank and pointed a gun at the teller and said, I'm not robbing this bank. Well, yet you're robbing the bank and, and saying you're not doesn't change anything. I think President Trump is going to continue to do what I always expected him to do, which is make the transition as disorderly as possible. And I think this tweet, the statement is just a, a fig leaf for his most committed supporters to sort of either pretend uh, or to, to, to convince others that President Trump isn't actually doing what he's obviously doing? No, I mean, I, at this point, I disagree. I, my sense about it is he's realized he's gone so far. He's realized he has no support with respect to anybody else. He realizes that he can't organize a second insurrection. He realizes that the Biden uh, presidential situation has been certified by the Senate, uh, that the only thing that's left is the passage of time. I think he's trying to cut his losses. I don't think he's trying to do what you said after January 21st, if he's just so bloody-minded as to continue this, he may then try to follow up on the charges of fraud in Georgia, um, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Philadelphia, wherever else it has been. But I don't think that's what he's after now. I think, in effect, this is in some sense a call for mercy. And the other situations, we've always disagreed about the, the Ukrainian situation. I thought that was a kind of an impeachment that should have never been brought. I think it was essentially a low-level political dispute. You read the full transcript. It's two guys stroking each other for their greatness and their victories. Um, I don't think you're engaged in secret plots when there are 25 people listening in on both sides. I thought the prosecution, the, the impeachment of Trump was a serious breach of the uh, sort of the conventional sense on this. And the, I think the conclusive evidence of that is when you get every Democrat in the Senate willing to essentially convict the president of obstruction of Congress before they even try to get a subpoena on him. Uh, that sounds like a political prosecution. So, I mean, I think the man is paranoid, but I think like all paranoid, there's some truth with respect to 
what has gone on. I want him out of there. I do think that the prosecutions afterwards would be appropriate. I don't think that we're going to see at this particular point any serious um, uh, further disruptions of civil order. Um, And I don't want his chief executives to resign because I agree with you on this. I mean, you leave that man alone in the White House. Lord knows what it is that he will do. So you want every one of these senior people to stay firm with him, uh, just the way when it turned out that Nixon was in trouble. It was Robert Bork who was left holding the bag for this kind of thing. But it would have been a mistake for Bork to resign after it turned out that the attorney general and the deputy attorney general are both left under the circumstances. That would be Cox and Ruckelshaus, rather. Um, um, who was the attorney general? I mean, it wasn't Archibald Cox. He was the special investigator. I, I think, in effect, you just can't do uh, that. So uh, the real thing is there's not enough time, uh, 13 days, to put any of these processes into place. What you want to do is you basically want to babysit the president so he doesn't act out in either national or international affairs with something that's profoundly stupid, which, of course, he's capable of doing. So I, I would not want to I, – I don't read it the way you do on this situation. I think uh, what happens is he's a guy who's a bully on one hand and then he's a supplicant on the other. He doesn't understand the power of the old Yiddish maxim, don't bite me, don't kiss me. And that's what Trump is only capable of doing, either biting or kissing, which is one of the reasons why he's such a defective human being. I think, I mean, getting back to that statement of his, I mean, I I think he's probably throwing in the towel on the election. But what does that mean then? How's he going to occupy himself between now and the inauguration? I mean, he'll he'll do the pardons, probably a self-pardon. But in terms of orderly transition, no, you know, there's already been reports that the transition has not been orderly and that the Pentagon and the Office of Management and Budget have not been helpful in terms of an orderly transition. And my guess is that President Trump, sulking and pouting over his, his now clear, you know, an unavoidable loss is going to sort of relish the opportunity to to make things as difficult for the incoming administration. Uh, I agree with that. And and he'll say and he'll 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 compare it to the way he thinks he was treated by by the Obama administration. Well, I, my yeah. guess is that it's as usual a grain of truth and an ounce and a pound of hyperbole on that. I, I agree with you that he's likely to do that. I would hope that people in these offices would basically buck him on this particular issue. Um, I still hope he resigns. Uh, but that's not going to happen. Uh, I think we're just going to have to grit it out and go through this particular period. And I think what's going to have to happen is that the Republicans in the Senate, when it comes to the confirmation of key Biden operatives, are going to essentially have to sort of expedite rather than to prolong it. I mean, my hope is that um, Merrick Garland will be confirmed on the first or second day in which the Biden mission takes hold. I think it's that important. I think of all the positions that we have to worry about, about given the huge tumult that's happening, uh, the attorney general at this point, maybe not usually, but at least at this point, is probably the single most important member of the Biden cabinet. I think he has to be approved on the first day. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about Garland then. I gather you uh, you like the nomination. Look, I mean, uh, yes, I think Garland, by every account, is a splendid human being, a fine judge. Um, I thought the nomination that Obama had was an inspired choice by the president for his side. What he did is he picked somebody who was moderately older. He was 64 at the time. He was certainly more conservative than most of the liberal judges, most notably uh, Ginsburg at the time and Sotomayor, a very respected justice, 
adored by his clerks and by everybody who happened to work with him. And so it was the perfect nomination. And then I think what McConnell thought on the other side was, I know this is a great guy, uh, but I think on the five or six issues that really divides the two parties, he's going to vote with the liberals, and I don't want to turn the control of the court over. I think McConnell, having that judgment, which is his, not mine, to make, uh, did the right thing in not having a hearing because I would not want to have this man taken through the mud. Now he's going into an administration. It's not a long-term position. I think it would be more than fitting for McConnell to essentially give a strong speech endorsing the nomination and saying that he will do everything in his power to rally the Republicans behind it. I think symbolically it's very important that this one be approved unanimously. Um, the question of other officials, I don't know. I either Lisa Monaco is a friend of mine and a former student. She's up as if a deputy attorney general. Whatever it is she's up for, she should be confirmed. Um, you know, uh, and then the political offices having to do with the Office of Civil Rights, I think that's a very different kind of problem. Uh, but I think the first thing to do is we have to establish orderly transition on these things. And I think that those two people, particularly Garland, is the person to do it. So um, I, and I wish Biden well on this particular stuff. Uh, so you now the hope is to become the loyal opposition to fight his progressive agenda while supporting on everything that has to do with the integrity of our public institutions and processes. Man, I agree with you. I think Garland is a, was a, the ideal choice for this job. I, I think it's not a coincidence Biden waited until after the Georgia election results to make this pick because uh, picking, Biden, uh, picking Garland will open up a seat on the D.C. Circuit. And now that Democrats have a, a, a majority, a bare majority in the, in the Senate with the vote of Vice President Harris, uh, they'll be able to confirm a successor to Judge Garland on the D.C. Circuit, um, but no, I think it, I, I was worried. I was I was very worried about who Biden might put in charge of the Justice Department, um, and this I think is an inspired choice. It's it's a choice that will attempt to try to build confidence around the Justice Department or, or rebuild confidence around it. Uh, he's not a partisan warrior or flamethrower. Uh, I think the cruel irony of this is, you know, of the date that he was nominated or as he was announced um, on the date of this insurrection at the Capitol. You know, you recall the formative experience for Judge Garland, he's always said, was his prosecution of the uh, Oklahoma City bombers, um, which is obviously on a scale much, much worse in terms of personal harm than, than yesterday's mob protests. Um, but it's in, in many ways, I think, the closest analog we've seen in terms of domestic Insurrection. I, I think Garland's an inspired choice, and I'm very happy about it. And as you said, he'll be confirmed, perhaps unanimously, but with Democrats winning Georgia's two Senate seats, um, there's no question now they'll be able to confirm not just Garland, but other cabinet secretaries who they might not have gotten through under a, a, a small Republican majority. I was very curious to see if McConnell held a Georgia Senate seat, what what that would mean for confirmation. I was actually very, a little worried that Republican senators wouldn't allow Biden to nominate not just the, I think, the bad nominees like Javier Becerra for HHS, um, but, but you know, I think perfectly reasonable nominees for other jobs. Um uh, and what do you, what do you what do you think is is the the aftermath of Georgia? Do you think it was good that 
the Democrats took both of those seats so that Biden could staff up an administration? Well, no, I think it was unfortunate because of the rest of the political agenda. I think the appropriate response would have been for the Republicans to essentially recognize that with respect to key presidential appointments, the implicit social norm is one of deference, and they would only start the fight on cases where they thought there were really genuine questions of uh, competence. I think Bakara is one such case. He has no experience in this stuff, or perhaps in the Civil Rights Office and so forth, where, I mean, Benita Gupta and so forth, you know, uh, you're going to see more um, dear colleague letters coming out because I think the first thing that's going to happen is all of the uh, reforms that were made in the Trump administration about stopping these kinds of insurrections and procedures, all of that stuff is going to be wiped off the board. And what's going to happen is you're now going to have a situation where I think a, a heavy Trump judiciary is going to have serious due process and serious First Amendment objections to the kinds of procedures that were put into place. And I think that will play out. But um, I'm not so sure that I believe that you're right to say that the Democrats will be 50 and one on every one of these appointments. There's still Joe Manchin or whatever his name is up in there in West Virginia. And, you know, he's in a heavily Republican state. And I assume that there are at least some of those nominations in which he might not be prepared to go aboard. I guess he now turns out to be the swing voter, isn't he, on these cases? Because if he decides to say no um, on something, I'm pretty sure there'll be no Republican that will uh, offset that. And so I think there's at least a little bit of a constraint on what it is that Biden can do, uh, which I regard as a helpful thing. I mean, uh, nominating uh, Garland too to the uh, District of Columbia Circuit Court, I think should be approved by acclamation. Uh, But I could imagine people in the uh, old Obama administration or in the civil rights movement whose nominations I would think would be very, very dangerous. Uh, So I don't know. I mean, I think there will be Biden will play it correct, then we'll appoint the nominee to the open seat that will be essentially in the Garland mode. Uh, But going down the road, I just don't know how the battle between the very strong progressives on the one hand and the sensible moderates on the other hand is going to play itself out. And if the progressives win on some of the nominations, I can conceive there being one or two votes perhaps amongst the senators on the Democratic side uh, that might uh, wish to stop it. Uh, I can't be sure about this, but I would not rule that out. I definitely think Manchin's now the, the swing vote. You've seen some progressive sort of worry that he won't be reliable. Um, Thank I think God. That, I, I think that, you know, he, he's, he will be the what stands between uh, progressive Democrats and really radical uh, policy changes, especially on uh, energy and environmental policy. But I think he'll be a reliable vote for staffing up an administration, for Biden's judicial nominations, and, and so on. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I am worried about what the, the what kind of legislative reforms a Biden administration might undertake. But at the same time, I was also worried that if Republicans convinced themselves, if they were the majority and they convinced themselves that they wanted to have a full court press against judicial nominations or against, say, a Supreme Court nomination when when Justice Breyer, say, retires at the end of this term, if that happens, um, that would, I think, be a bad thing in terms of ratcheting up more political pressure for really ruinous things like court packing plans and so on. And so I think I think Manchin in many ways is going to operate like a pressure release valve uh, for the worst kinds of pressure in terms of both pressure from the right to obstruct appointments and, and pressure from the left to do really radical reforms on, uh, on legislation. I think he's hasn't he already declared himself against court packing, I believe. 
Well, may, maybe, but what, worry, what worries me, what I guess what I was, what I was getting at was what, what I was getting at was if Republicans managed to say block a Supreme Court nomination for a year in the in the second year of Biden's nomination, uh, Biden's administration, you know, you could see that you could see a, a, a sort of a, a backdraft in terms of of inflaming progressives who would you know push to win enough seats at the midterms to to do court packing, notwithstanding Mansion. Um, I agree with that. I mean, and I think it would be foolish for them to do that. Um, My view about McConnell is he is extremely skillful in the way in which he runs this thing. I think from his point of view, he played the Garland situation correctly. The progressives will not forgive him. He also, against my advice, I think he played the Barrett situation well. And if you start looking at what you've seen with the various people on the Supreme Court, if you actually look at their performance, I think the Democrats would be, shall we say, overwrought to claim that Gorsuch, who gave them Bostock, I thought incorrectly, and Kavanaugh and Barrett are the kinds of people whom you can actually put up as villains in an effort to try and pack the Supreme Court. Uh, if you recall, there was this constant undercurrent of conversation saying that if any issue having to do with the Trump campaign became before the Supreme Court, Amy Barrett had to withdraw from this because she was beholden to him for the nomination. I think that's a real uh, form of defamation against a person's character, particularly somebody of her character, which is splendid. And it turned out one such issue did come up with respect to the Texas challenge to the Pennsylvania vote and so forth. And it was nine, nothing on the standing issue, which put that to an end. And, and so, and also I think the Trump judges behaved admirably in lots of other places. Steve Bebus, I think, wrote a very, very strong opinion in Pennsylvania and so forth. Uh, so I don't think there's anything out there. Um, that can stoke the progressive ire to the point that court packing is going on. And remember, we'll now have a couple more years of decisions by the new Supreme Court. My guess is that the six-person conservative block is not monolithic. Uh, Justice, uh, the chief justice is already known to flip on many issues. Uh, There's a kind of a stubborn libertarian streak uh, in criminal procedure matters. And I'm saying Bostock on on Neil Gorsuch, which makes him unpredictable. Uh, So I think, in effect, that it's a kind of a loose confederation. I don't think it's an ironclad alliance. And I think that should ease some of the pressures against uh, the court packing proposals. I hope so. I I think, you know, as as I said at the time of the the Ginsburg, her passing and the vacancy of her seat, that – I think the pretty, I, I think it was pretty clear hypocrisy between the way they framed their arguments in 2016 versus the way they framed their arguments in 2020, the Republican senators, that it really, that it really inflamed uh, a lot of pro- progressive Democrats, to say the least, and that's that's been muted since the election. But I, I, what worried me again was if Republicans found themselves in a position to just stonewall a Supreme Court seat for say the year 2021. Um, to 2022, uh, that they there might be blowback. But obviously, again, it's not. It's a moot point now since since Democrats, uh, for better or for worse, you know, took the Georgia seats. Um, we only have a few. Yeah, more. I mean, oh, the dangers both ways. I think the judicial nominations are a relatively smallish part of the overall puzzle. I think the huge transformations in the way in which the Senate committees are going to be organized and so forth is much more. And there's an interesting kind of procedural question. Uh, the vice president gets to cast the decisive vote 
um, once something is out of committee and it gets to the Senate floor. Uh, but if it's in committee, I assume that if it's 50-50, there'll be an equal number of Democrats and Republicans on every committee. Is that right or is that wrong? Oh, I don't know, actually. I, I don't think I don't think so. I mean, we'd have to go back and think about the first years of the Bush administration when there was a 50-50 split. <laughs> Um, before Jeffrey, my view, before Jeffrey I think Bush. it's even. I and, no, I don't know. No, and then no, the no, just getting no. things out of committee is, is going to be a tricky issue. And you know, are you really going to say if it's even that if you do that? So the Democrats, so there's a kind of a blocking position that takes place at the lower level. Maybe one doesn't know. Um, but it's one of these many things. I think it's a matter of Senate rules and so forth, but I believe that these have been standing rules. Uh, it would be very unbecoming to have a situation in which the Democrats decide that since we now have the vice president, she's going to cast the deciding vote so that when it comes to committees, there will always be plus one Democrat on every committee. Um, but, you know, this is the kind of thing we worried about. Uh, we're going to be coming back, I think, sooner rather than later on this stuff. And maybe it's a, a good time to uh, confess to the public our own uncertainty about some of these institutional nuances, uh, because certainly in the next couple of months, we're going to have a full and fair hearing on all of these very delicate issues. Well, that's true. There's going to be much to discuss in the, the days ahead, the weeks ahead, and, and the months ahead. And we'll be back again for another episode around the time of the inauguration to take stock of what happens between now and then, in, including with the, the issue of of, uh, of presidential self-pardons. But uh, Richard, any closing thoughts before we, we, we wrap this one up? Um, let's just hope that this year ends up better than last one and that we get rid of the COVID violation so that people could return to normal sociability. Let's hope we're off to an inauspicious start, to, to say the least. But um, as, as always, uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in and, and join us again in a couple of weeks for another episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.